Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. How are you? Fine. Welcome to our show. I feel like I've used up all my good stuff talking to you beforehand. Yeah. You never recorded all the our good banter. Um, I mean, that's I- my excuse. All the all the mediocre banter. It's not because that's us. It's because the good stuff all happens too soon or too late. Sure. Um, okay. Well, I do have. Like- I can only be on like I don't know. Apparently, like three hundred days in a row before we record. <laughs> no, it's only been a week. It's been a week, and we have over thir- sixty of these now, right? Yeah, this is number yeah. sixty-one, maybe. That's what Google Docs says. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Um. So we have a couple like mini things that I wanted to bring up before we get into the meaty bit of our conversation, which is about indie everything. Um, but first I had three links in our show notes. Um, the first one is the bike of the future. Have you seen the bike of the future? I have not. It's, Does it have wheels still? Yeah. I mean, actually I thought it was, I, I brought it, I wanted to include it just cause I thought it was an interesting idea of someone who sort of looked at the bike and said, what are the ways this could be better? Um, and I think they came up with some pretty clever ideas. It's got um, integrated um, electric assist. Um, it's got a basically an automatic transmission, which I think probably means some sort of um, CVT, mechanical CVT or something. Um, and then the handlebars have an integrated lock, so you can pop the handlebars off and use them to lock it to a tree or a bike stand. Um, and it's got less material in it, so it's lighter and uh, cheaper to make. So, I don't know. I thought it was an interesting rethinking of an object that has, you know, stayed pretty much the same in terms of general form fa- format for, for quite a while. Huh. So, is this real or is this, like, design wankery? Um, I mean, they've made at least one, um, and I think they're trying to make more. They are making more. Um, but it's not, like, in mass production. Taking a little bit of time off making the thing to make the YouTube video. Yeah. Anyways, I thought, I thought it was kind of neat. Um, yeah. It's just, it's you know, uh, bikes are such a funny thing because they are a very effective means to move around in a city, but the vast majority of people won't use them no matter what. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I It kind of got me wondering whether there's anything you can do design-wise or in terms of the way bikes work that would actually get them... Um, to reach whatever barrier keeps people from using them. Yes, there is. This is a solved problem. What is it? You put two more wheels on them, doors and uh, an engine? No, you put the little divider in the street, the little curb. Yeah, but I mean, like, I feel like... And then you do the protected corner thing. I mean, that goes a long ways, but I feel like there's an entire fairly large set of people who just wouldn't use a bike and it just doesn't occur to them. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think it's less so in, in cities. I mean, we have a very successful bike share program here. Um, most cities have them now. And that goes a long ways. I mean, I don't own a bike, but I use the bike share quite often. But uh, I don't know. Anyways, um, maybe more design can help. Curbs. Or mandates. Government mandates. Yeah. That might help too. Um, next thing I had was uh, an article from The Economist about a research paper on these um, flies who have 
ultra, ultra sensitive directional hearing. And what's cool is the way it works. And you can read the article to get into the the specifics of how it works. But um, basically, they don't have ears because what they're detecting is a particular predator who generates sound at like five hertz. And so um, it's not something that would be easily discerned. Like the wavelength is too long for something the size of a fly to be able to detect it. And so instead, they have this like sort of biological balance that can um, detect the phase of different sound waves. And based on um, the the phase, it can detect which direction the sound is coming from. What? Yeah. I don't get that. It's pretty crazy. Um, and there's a, the researchers are looking at using the tech in um, hearing aids and things as a way to do directional audio without, you know, looking at the, without looking at amplitude, but rather looking at phase. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, flies are pretty cool. And last one is an article from uh, PVC uh, from Scott Simmons on editing Sharknado 2. And I enjoyed Did this. Did he cut that? No, no, no. Oh, okay. I don't think so. No, someone else did. Um, a, a small... Um, shop did but i appreciated one i think this article is good for two reasons one it gives you a look inside sort of the shoddiness of real world post-production like it's rushed and you do all kinds of things that people would think you were crazy for doing because you have to get the project done oh Um, yeah and also because the sort of the edit on sharknado 2 is right in line with everything else about sharknado 2 in terms of i don't know it, it was done in like you know two weeks or something by a guy working on Premiere. Um, and hey, be nice to Premiere. Oh, I'm not. It's I'm not criticizing system. Premiere, but it's a uh, it's a good article. Talks. I mean, about, if you're gonna make fun of the guy and his gear, then make fun of these monitors, right? Yeah, I know he's got uh, the old twenty inch plastics. Nineteen, I think. Right? Yeah, whatever they were, they were. God. Those are. How does he even do that? Those must, are like ADC connections. They must be so yellow. Oh, but not even that. Like, they're plugged into like a new Mac Pro. Right. He probably bought... I, I think oh. someone sold an adapter ages ago. Because yeah. they're like powered through that connector and everything. Yeah. Okay. You know. So he's got like a, two of those adapters plugged into like one of those things that splits a DVI connection across two screens. Yeah. Plugged into his HDMI or something. Okay. Those are fully depreciated at this point. I think so. Um, so, but, yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, I'm still waiting for a 30 inch before I can start cutting my masterpiece. <laughs> um, no, it's a good article, though, and it, it does get into some details on um, how the project came together. I have not seen Sharknado 2. I've seen Sharknado 1, um, but not 2. I have not. I only Are saw it. At, I only saw it in the Rift Tracks um, live thing. Oh yeah. So that made it bearable. I I don't think it would have been watchable if you sat down to watch it like by yourself as a movie. You don't smoke enough pot. I don't think. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is like given like chemical alterants could um, make it better, but um, yeah. Huh. It's a little rough. You're saying it's designed to be mocked not watched right exactly so um but yeah oh also um good good thing in it is that they 
so they shot red epic and then uh, bmcc canon 5d and canon 7d and they transcoded everything to prores and i thought boy they need a uh, really fast transcoding tool did you reach out to them no for sharknado 3 d it was cut by the asylum though i feel like we uh know those people we do know them i don't know there's a there's an awful lot of companies in that naming genre what's it called the asylum wait but it's not i don't think it's the the asylum you're thinking of no it can't be right because they make software right oh no i'm thinking something else um what was the vfx house that was attached to um red giant years ago the orphanage orphanage sorry yeah exactly the place where you put people you don't want (laughs) alabama (laughs) oh Uh, i'm sorry alabama i didn't mean it it was just you i went through the list of states and because you're a you came up first (laughs) no, no hard feelings Next time he'll use Alaska. Don't worry. Yeah, it's that B and gets you every time. Um, okay, so this week there was an awful lot of chatter on Twitter and on the um, the web about the sort of that we're past the glory days of indie development and um, we should all quit our jobs and go back to working for corporations. Quit our no, unquit our jobs. Right. We should. Yeah. We should uh, get put on pants. And uh, re-unquit our jobs. Go yeah. get a job. Yeah. So, so uh, if you were, yeah, if you had the free time to hang out on Twitter a lot this week, then you saw this. Uh, I don't understand. I'm just saying, on the indies, we have a lot of time to right. well, bite our nails. Yeah, we mostly just hang out and watch soap operas. And the boss isn't watching us. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess we should sort of explain where this came from. Yeah, Uh, the Genesis was Brent Simmons' article, right? I guess so. I mean, it's sort of been uh, this time around, definitely. Um, This, you know, this has been sort of a conversation amongst iOS developers for a while now that basically they're not making the money they used to and that sort of the economics of the app store are getting consistently worse for them. Um, People used to pay a little bit of money for an app. Now they won't pay anything. The only way to make it rich is to do in-app purchases. Um, The review process is crappy and encourages them to harangue their customers to get reviews. If you're not in the top 50 you go, you just disappear from people's. Uh, also, you need a big marketing budget no matter what. Yeah, that doesn't come up enough, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of um, fretting about the fact that the App Store is rewarding the wrong kind of apps and that, you know... No one wants to read Tolstoy anymore. Yeah. They just want to play the Kim Kardashian game. <laughs> um, that makes $700,000 a day. I believe it. Yeah. You know, I, I, the App Store is a long tail sort of environment, right? Uh, is that a Kim Kardashian joke? 
No, but I guess it could have been. <laughs> uh, although it's entirely possible that uh, uh, Cory Doctorow is a Kim Kardashian joke. I don't know. What? Um, so, and and most of these articles have been specific to iOS development and really saying... pretty good success in terms of building a really good product whoa you're back what happened i was gone oh that was weird it kept recording oh didn't keep letting me hear you okay what were you saying um i was saying you know it seems like even the people who've had some amount of success like have put out an app that's well received and you know hits a niche are not finding that it's very sustainable. So I'm thinking of um, Jared's article on Unread App, which is, by all accounts, a really, really nice RSS reader. Um, yeah, and Jared's, you know, a friend. We talk. And, and you know, he had a great launch and a lot of great write-ups and everything, and then just sort of... Critically, s- critically acclaimed. Yeah, um, saw his traffic drop to almost nothing pretty quickly. Um, and... There's been a lot of talk about things Apple could do in this space, things developers could do in this space. Um, And then a lot of, yeah, a lot of pushback saying it's unreasonable to have this expectation that you can be a full-time indie developer. Yeah. Where do we start? Where do we start? Um, I mean, I'm not sure there's all that much to say that's specific to the indie developer side I mean that's obviously where we're coming from um, I don't know if we want to try to rope in other indie stuff at the same time and have the larger conversation yeah I don't really have too much interesting to say about this so I think one of the things I wanted to just point out explicitly vis-a-vis the software and coming out of a lot of these conversations is this message that indie developers really need to charge what they need to charge um and rather than sort of charging some tiny little number which is what they sort of think people are willing to pay um on the assumption that people won't pay much i I guess what i'm saying is um you know if you're serious about being a full-time indie developer and you're not making a sort of viral game, I don't think it's realistic to sell your app for 99 cents. Um, you know. Well, I, yes. But it may also not be realistic to sell the same app for five bucks. Right. I, I totally agree. But I think coming out of the gate, you need to price it at some more reasonable amount that actually makes getting a non-viral amount of sales worthwhile. Um, because Yeah, I mean... and. I think we can blame Apple a lot for that. I mean, Apple talks about how many users and everything else. Um, and there's lots of press about the, you know, the people who are getting, you know, 20,000, 40,000 sales a day. Yeah. You know, it's easy to imagine that you will get a decent amount of sales too. Right. Um, but I, 
I just, yeah, I haven't seen the stats sort of bear that out. I think one of the other data points we got this week was um, uh, the the boy everyone loves to hate, Marco Arment, released his new podcasting app, Overcast, um, last week. And it is a model where it's free to download, but a variety of the sort of more interesting features of it are time restricted unless you um, buy an in-app purchase to basically unlock those features. Um, and that's a $5 purchase. And he hasn't released conversion numbers, but said that within the first eight days in which he had tons of press and was a featured app on the front of the app store, he got about 160,000 downloads. And of that, about half of people actually launched the app um, and you know started using it, um, which to me is a pretty small number given the size of the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean... I just don't think it's all that big when you get down to it. I, I mean, think obviously that, yeah. there are people using games. I mean, there are people making very good money in games. Right. But I, I think the reality is, like, one, a massive chunk of the market is non-English speaking and not seeing the same app store you're seeing. True. Um, two, doesn't, I mean, I don't launch the app store app ever and browse for things. Um, you know, I did that five years ago or six years ago when the app store was new, but it just doesn't occur to me to like see what the cool new apps I can download are. And so unless I'm being driven to it by some external service, I'm not going to see it. Um, but I think a lot of people also sort of get their phone set up at this stage and it's just my phone. It's an appliance as we've sort of talked about in the past. And I don't feel the need, like I'm happy enough with my podcast client. I think overcast is probably better, but I, you know, I've got a podcast client. I've got a Twitter client. I've got a weather client. I've got, you know, um, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think the biggest problem, I mean, so I think one of the things that gets confused a lot with this indie app conversation is that for a lot of these conversations, indie apps mean lifestyle apps because that seems to be what the majority of these failures are. Um, you know, RSS readers, uh, podcast apps, they're not, they're not an app to help you do your job. They're an app to help you live your life. And I think people just, when it's, when the thing that you're streamlining isn't a source of income for you, there's just so much less incentive to actually get around to buying it or to trying it or to using it. Um, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, which is why, I mean, you know, which has been part of the conversation. This is why, you know, one of the, another friend, Tyler, um, who we'll link to posted some of his numbers about selling Mac apps, which obviously are a little bit different. Um, but, you know, he's had relatively good success with his um, app to help web developers set up their host file. You know, it's just a bread and butter. This does a thing that I would have had to do anyways, and it saves me time. And I had to do this for work, and I was going to bill someone for it. So I will just bill them for this app, and it'll get done, and we'll roll it into my hourly rate. You know, and I, you know, it's worth, you know, it's sort of an un... You know, it's an unspoken fact that, you know, the fact that we're here podcasting on our payroll, you know, we're not hurting too bad either. Um, 
you know, and I still, I guess, lump us in with the, you know, we're indie developers. Absolutely. But we're not making, you know, $4 podcasting apps. We're making software for smart professionals like all of you. Right. And, and we target a specific industry and we solve a specific definable problem. Um, right. We're not saying we're going to make life more fun or anything like that. Um, well, because people don't really spend money to make their lives fun. Yeah. At least not on... They nickel and dime over stuff like that. Yeah. Because there's a million things to do to make your life more fun, and they all cost X amount of dollars, and you have a finite amount of dollars. So you have, it's like trying to pick out a new breakfast cereal. There's too many options. Like, you know, even if you were the kind of person, which would be weird, who like every day was like, okay, I'm going to spend $20 today to make my life just a little bit more enjoyable. Like, what the hell would you spend it on? You know, would your first impulse be to go to the app store and look for something to make podcast listening better? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And it's also, I think, you know, so many of these things are used infrequently as well. And that creates a, a real pressure for us to not buy it because we think, well, I need it right now, but then I won't use it again. And I can sort of make do. Um and so it's a balancing act of sort of um, finding apps that are going to be useful enough to justify the price um, and solve a specific problem. And, yeah. Um, and I think it's harder to do that on the mobile platforms because people don't use them for work at this point in the same way they do on their on their desktops. Now, certainly, um, and I think we've seen, you know, the Omni Group, for example, yeah, I'll drop twenty bucks for OmniFocus right. every single time they update it. They've been um, really successful, uh, I, I think. I mean, they're still around, but successful selling you know desktop priced apps on iPad and iOS. And I think the way people use their apps on on iPad in particular very much mirrors desktop usage. Um, it's not like a get in get out type experience. It's a get in do work experience, right? So. I mean, so stepping back a little bit, do you have any sort of prognostication about the iOS app market? I mean, we've we've said for years that we've seen this trend at WWDC. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I sort of jumped in on this conversation a little bit on Twitter um, because the the like common sense. Um, consensus that people are coming to is that the way you make money in the app store now is to make like, you know, just four to 800 apps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you just, so you make, you know, the, the, the people who started doing this first were game developers. They would either make or just buy a game engine outright. It was like some sort of platform scroller or, you know, um, puzzle game. And then you just make like 30 versions of it. All you do is just change out the graphics every week or two. Um, And so sometimes it's a penguin walking to the right, jumping over, you know, icy things. And sometimes it's a turtle walking to the right, jumping over jungly things or beachy things. And then you just sell them and you just, you know, you never rev the thing. You make it once, you put it on the store and you move on. Um, you know, one of the people who had a blog post telling people, you know, telling Jared how he can make good money said like, 
make apps which are catalogs of pictures that you steal from the internet. Okay. <laughs> like, like make an app which is just a, a picture viewer and preload it with like a bunch of pictures of supermodels and sell it for a buck. And then swap out all the pictures for pictures of cars and sell for a buck. And then swap out all the pictures for pictures of cats and sell for a buck. And, you know, that's probably, you know, I don't doubt that these people are making money. But did you quit your corporate job with healthcare to do that? Right. I mean, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's where my rant eventually got to was like, why? I mean, and I think part of this is like, this is a cultural shift because the people I hear bitching and moaning about this most, this new reality, are the Mac people. You know, like we got here because we wanted to develop for Mac. It didn't make as much money, but we did it because when you made a Mac app, you were held to a higher standard and you really polished shit and everybody cared whether it looked nice. And you had these customers who like gave a rat's ass if you made good software or not. And that does not seem to be our customer base anymore on iOS. Right. And so, yeah, you know, world's tiniest violin. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, but I think it does as long as you're not chasing the, the new, you know, gold rush. I mean, you know, maybe it's not possible on iOS anymore, you know, at least not in the sheer numbers that it was before. Um, but you know, there's definitely still people making decent money on the Mac side. Yeah. And I think the reality is, you know, you can be an indie developer and have an app as a side gig very successfully. I think a lot of people are doing that and, you know, you don't need to be putting 40 hours a week, every week into your iOS app. And, and one of the things I think, you have to decide is are you okay with your app being stagnant and sort of slowly dying or do you want to be working on it every week? Um, yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of people are enamored with the lifestyle of it more than the, like the right. work of it. Yeah. Like, you know, I want to be an indie developer because it sounds so cool to not have a boss and to, you know, whatever. But, you know, I don't like the, you know, the business side of it, but like, you know, it's a business. Right. And, and yeah, I think there is that differentiation. Like if you find writing apps really fun and it's what you do in your free time, I think you can, you know, be very successful by that standard, make a couple hundred extra, extra bucks a month, which is, you know, very nice and do something you enjoy and have this other side of your life and get to interact with customers and, you know, it potentially, you know, gives you exposure to other opportunities in life. Um, and I think, you know, if you're the kind of person for whom that's attractive, there's still really great opportunities there and it can be a launching board to, you know, bigger things. Um, but I still talk to people in my day to day life and and I'm sure you do too, who sort of say, no, I don't talk to anyone in my day to day life anymore. Yeah. Um, roofers maybe. Um, I, you know, they say I'm going to quit my job and make an app or, you know, I've got this great idea for this awesome app. Can you help me make it? I've got the idea. You just make it. So I'll give you 10%. Um, you know, <laughs> that's a cool $2,000, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I just don't, I, I think that's almost impossible nowadays to go from zero to successful. Um, and, and we, you know, for a lot of other reasons that we've talked about in the past, you know, really successful apps have big web components and are multi-platform and have social elements and all these things that you can't, you can. Well, and they're successful, but don't make any money. Right. They have VC and then they get bought. Right. I mean, all the apps you're talking about don't have to turn a profit. They don't charge anything for the app. Right. So, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of where I come down. Like, you, and, and I do think that, you know, you can make a handful of good small apps and, you know, support yourself. But I don't know. I don't know any indie developers who got rich being indie developers. I guess there are a few. Um, yeah, I mean, the first ones always. But even, yeah, I mean, aside from the few breakout viral hits, like, you know, we know a lot of people who are able to support themselves in a, you know, comfortable middle-class lifestyle on indie development. But if your goal is to sort of have a gold-plated Bugatti or something, you should be working at a startup. Yeah. But I mean, I hope no one, I mean, that's not the ideal of being an indie, is it? I think there's a big chunk of the population who doesn't realize that that gold rush mentality is is long past um, yeah i mean i think there's a lot of people who always talk about their app idea who've never actually written anything yeah. who sort of believe that yeah but i think the people who are actually developers who are bemoaning you know the change in the economics they just want to like you know make 60 80k a year yeah which is you know a lot of money for fart apps and fart pianos but yeah but i mean i I was talking to someone at the climbing gym last week who is working on a game for android and he he was saying oh god you should hear what he has to go through to make like to deal with accelerometers and things like oh this device mounted its accelerometer upside down and doesn't correct the values and so you have to special case it in your app um anyways uh, he was saying like you know, do you think it's realistic to put the app out there at a dollar and expect to get 40,000 purchases? No. Right. Definitely not. And he said, how about 20? And I said, no. And we sort of got down and I thought, you know, you could maybe get between, you know, and he wasn't planning to do any marketing or anything. I think, you know, you could maybe get between 10 and 100 sort of accidental purchases and things over time. But beyond that, you need to treat it like a business. And yeah. It's going to be hard work, and you're probably not going to succeed. But yeah, I mean, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand. So uh, let's get into the actual larger indie discussion. I think a lot of people, you know, this was explained to me a long time ago, and I may have even before I quit my fake other job, start this fake job. Um, but, you know, the story, you know, the thing I was told is if you if you have something that you love doing, do not do it. Do not quit your job and do it like for yourself because you will slowly do less. And like all you're doing is taking on all of the other responsibilities that will keep you from doing the thing that you like. So if you like programming, work for someone who has an HR department and a sales department and a marketing department and a boss who sets your schedule and someone who cuts your paycheck and all that stuff so that you know, separation of responsibilities, you program and they do the like clean the floors and empty the garbage and wash the toilets and keep the building lit and all that other stuff. 
And I think, you know, a lot of people forget about that. They're like, I like making games. I should become a game developer. And I don't want to put up with any of that bullshit of, you know, companies expecting all these things of me. So I should become an indie. Well, it's like, well, then, you know, you don't have a boss anymore. Great. But now all of the reasons, I mean, your boss wasn't, you know, pressuring you to hit deadlines and make good you know, bug-free software and not write snarky comments in your things that show up in alerts because they're douchebags. They do it because, you know, that's what you have to do to make a good app. And, you know, all it, it just means you're the guy who has to worry about that crap now. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people forget that. I, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And it seems like a lot of the conversation around this indie stuff has been like, you know, like, oh, yeah, we have to market things. Yeah. And I mean, and I blame Apple a lot for that because Apple basically said, one, Apple, like, actively makes it difficult to market your apps. And two, they, you know, they did that because they put it under the rubric that they do for all their development stuff, which is like, it's magic. You don't have to worry about it anymore. We're doing it for you. You know, like, you don't have to worry about putting data in the cloud anymore because we have iCloud. And you don't have to worry about marketing your apps because we have the App Store. And neither of those are true. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that is a huge point, And I think it's one that is dramatically under-discussed and also underserved um, because it's, I think, probably our, our biggest challenge as developers is, is the marketing side. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, easily. And the, I, think, I think for the, a lot of people, yeah. Yeah. The hardest thing for our company is marketing our products. And there isn't a magic solution to that that I can think of. Um, And, you know, I think the flip side of it is one of the reasons why we're successful and why Tyler was successful making his web design tools and why, you know, a lot of the indies I hear who are successful, you know, the story is pretty common. It's like, I was doing this thing for a living and I started writing an app on the side for me and then when I was, when it got far enough, I started showing it to other people and they said, this is really great. And then I decided to package it up and sell it. And this, you know, I think what a lot of people hear there is like, you need a really long runway to get started. But what I think the reality is, is like, you need to have a really strong understanding of your customer base and you need to have a community into which to sell that you are that you have like some credibility with absolutely, which is what marketing is. And so you don't actually need to market if you have enough friends who will buy your app or coworkers. So having a large community of people who do the same thing you do is almost as good as marketing your app, which yeah. is, you know, a, in large part, how we've succeeded is because, you know, we both came from video and we know video people and video people know us and, you know, I like we don't do, you know, the little bit of marketing success we've had is not because we load up a PR web template and put in a bunch of stuff that looks like a press release. It's that we like write people we know and say like, hey, do you want to write an article about this? And they say, sure. Well, we don't even say that. We say, hey, we got this cool new app. You know, do you want to try it? And it's nice that a lot of them write for publications now. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Um, I, I also think one of the things I saw in a lot of the discussion that I think was a, um, a bad direction to go is people saying you can't make it. You, like one of the first things you have to do is stop providing support. Um, and I know that's a fine line, but I think over the long term, you know, having people know that we are real humans has been really great in terms of getting people to spread the word about our company. Oh yeah. And I think, I think, you know, the app store already goes a long ways towards ruining that by making developers faceless. Right. Um, I mean, that may be the right advice for the dollar. I, I, yeah, I think it's hard to do much support for a dollar. I think it's hard to, you know, do much of anything for a dollar because as soon as you have to do anything for a user, you've lost money. Yeah. Um, but I mean, um, I think that's more of an argument against making dollar apps. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that's, uh, I, I guess the other, the flip side of things is we wanted to talk a little bit more broadly about indie monetization in general, because there's been some stuff on, on the video side, um, this week about, um, different options for monetizing on YouTube. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the YouTube, uh, tip jar. Yeah. So this is a new thing they're apparently rolling out. I, to a few people at this point. Which is, you know, it's essentially the PayPal donate button, except it's built into YouTube. Um, which I guess is, you know, in some ways sort of a tacit admission that the ads are not, the ad revenue streams are not enough to support these people. Yeah. And I think I'd be curious if they're willing to, you know, shoot their own foot. What do you mean? Long term. Like basically go for the iOS model hmm. where do you want to donate a dollar to this channel to remove ads? Yeah. I mean, I would be, I'd be amazed if they would do that, but yeah. that seems like, a, you know, that is like a brilliant all around strategy for everyone except for YouTube. Right. Or their parent company at least. It'll be, um, It'll be interesting. I mean, I can certainly, I know that some channels are going to have a lot of success with this, especially the ones that are really built around a personality. And, you know, there's a lot of deeply emotional, personal channels with big communities behind them that are very, you know, very community oriented. And I think those channels are going to do really well with this sort of thing because they've already done well with other sorts of crowdfunding and crowd sponsorship. Um, I think for, you know, for other producers it's going to be a lot harder um the flip side is and the other thing i'll link to was uh something that happened with a, a youtube channel uh called drive slash drive um this was one that youtube seeded two years ago with a bunch of funding uh, to make car videos and they've been pretty successful in building subscribers to their channel i think they're over a million subscribers or some sort of large number and many of their videos have many many millions of views um but they the YouTube ended the program that was funding them and um, they did a breakdown that I can link to where they said, you know, these are our videos. They got this many views. We got this much ad revenue from them and it cost this much to produce them. And the second number is smaller than the first number. And so we need to do something else. Um, and so what they're going to is a subscription channel where they have some free content on one channel and then they have a sort of plus channel that's uh, $4 a month. $3 a month, something like that, or some is that amount something per year. YouTube allows? Yep. 
Yep. It's another, is this new too? Yeah. Another new thing from YouTube is these paid subscription channels. And I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, they, you know, had a lot of really angry 12 year olds on the internet yesterday when they announced this, um, having, you know, some valid points, I think in terms of pricing, I can understand the people who say $4 a month doesn't seem like much, but Netflix is only $8 a month and gets me, you know, house of cards and all this other stuff. Right. Right. Um, and these guys are saying like, well, we're a tiny little shop and we need to be profitable and, you know, we're not a public company, but, um, it was interesting as well because a lot of the comments were saying you should have gone with this sort of donation model, either with the YouTube thing or with, um, I forget the name of the one that everyone likes using on YouTube, but there's a third party, right. which to me, if you're sort of posting that in a comment thread about them going to subscription model implies that you're not willing to pay the $4. Right. You should have done this so I could have continued to watch the content while other people paid for it. Exactly. Which I think sort of which gets back to the point of why they're doing it. Exactly. Um, so it'll be interesting. And, and the cool thing will be that we'll ha- be able to, even if they don't release numbers, and I think they probably will, um, because view count is still shown on these subscription channels, we'll be able to get a pretty good sense oh, is. of uh, how many people have subscribed pretty quickly here. So their first videos went up this afternoon. So even by tomorrow, uh, you know, if you look at that pretty early slice, I think you'll have a good sense of how many people subscribed first day. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, so this kind of gets in gets us to the larger conversation, which is how much do we want to live in a world where everything's a la carte? Right. Because, you know, in a, and I guess, you know, like, that's something that's never even come up with the, you know, with the notion of the app store. But, like, what if apps were free for the iPhone and Apple just gave us all some money every year? Yeah, based on number of downloads. Based on usage or something. Uh, what was the, uh, I guess, the app.net followed that model. Oh, yeah. Like app.net or, um, what's it called? Um, the Spotify and some of those other ones. Yeah. I mean... You know, there's this problem where if, I don't know, I mean, the free market has has these issues (laughs) with bubbling up the best content, the best stuff in general, Um, which I mean, I guess means we have to go to this Kickstarter idea where everything worth making has to be done via patronage right because i mean the problem is i think we often forget both the the scale of the sort of traditional media production industry market and the degree to which most programs are subsidized by a few successful programs exactly and so i think there's this assumption that sort of any given program should be self-sufficient that was another thread in all these uh these comments on drive is sort of why didn't you just go out to sponsors and get sponsors and one of the guys from the group wrote back and is like you you know i think people think that there are all these sponsors out there waiting to just turn over money for internet advertising and that the reality is not there um you know even if you're doing a million views if you need to make 
$10,000 from that million views, which in the traditional, you know, if you had a million viewers for your TV show, you could definitely get more than $10,000 worth of advertising. Oh, easily. But, the, you know, the numbers don't translate into the internet, you know, video economy. So do you know what the single most successful YouTube channel is? No. Do you want to know? Um, is it one of the gaming channels? Or? No, guess for, yeah, no, give me your best guess. Um, I, I, I mean, I know some of those like kids who cry in their bedrooms are very, very successful, but I don't know who's number one. Cool. Okay. Everybody write down your guess on a sheet of paper at home. <laughs> the number one, um, at least grossing, it might be viewership as well. Um, channel on YouTube, I believe it's called Disney BK. Something like that, but it is a woman, we think, we don't even know who it is. It's a woman who unboxes Disney-branded toys. That's all she does. Okay. You've ne- no one's ever seen her face. All they've seen is her hands. Every single one of them is roughly the same. It's a you know, picture of the box, description of the toy, unpacking it, and then, like, sort of weird play in front of the camera with the toy. Okay. I think the article I read said something like she makes $10 million a year in ad revenue. Um, Estimate? I don't understand. Kids. Kids like watching toys. I guess. And they all have... uh... And, you know, I'm sure Disney... Has purchased AdWords or, you know, sure. Hands on these and other toy companies. So, yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I see this. An, un, an unknown toy reviewing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that blew me away. One for just the sheer numbers. I mean, so, like, if you have, if you, like, if the invisible hand chooses you there's money there yeah like there's no doubt that there's money flowing through all these pipes it just doesn't go to the shit that matters yeah huh i mean the hand's invisible because it's embarrassed (laughs) wow um that is terrifying and shocking and horrible so yeah so uh if you want to make it big uh, what you need to do is make four to eight hundred iPhone apps, all of which are catalogs of toys. Yeah, and run iAds on them as well. Yeah, that's <laughs> then you can you make any money on iAds. No, I don't. That was a funny joke. Yeah, that was that Did was. Even, does anyone even advertise in iAds anymore? Other know, than think, other iOS app developers. Yeah, I think the fill rate's very very low. I think it was sort of like uh, what was the ping? Was that the thing they did when they thought they needed the social network? <sighs> that was good. Yeah. It was one of those things where under the Steve regime, there were things that were launched that Steve thought were stupid and they didn't really go anywhere. And he wanted to prove it by... Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I think that that was one of those like, yeah, fine, whatever, start an ad network sort of conversations. Yeah, see if I care. Um, So, yeah, I guess the, the takeaway is you can be successful as an indie anything. It's going to be a lot of hard work. You're probably not going to get rich, and um, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what we're going to end up with, 
like the largest section of this is going to be basically using like taking advantage of people's optimism to constantly churn decent enough stuff. Yeah. You know, the same way, you know, between YouTube and Kickstarter and everything, like people are going to always, you know, the same way that we get nail salons and barbershops and laundromats and all these other things. Like people always underestimate how hard it is to run a successful business. They get into it and they last a little while and then they lose their entire savings. Yeah. It sucks. But like, what are we going to do? Have a stable, decent welfare state? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's be realistic here. Well, and I think, I, I think the important thing also to just interject a little bit of reality into this conversation is that, you know, basically every single failed indie iOS developer can still get a job, you know, don't shed too many tears for the person who couldn't make a living as an indie developer because they can still turn around and depending on where they live, probably make six figures. Yes. Um, you know, their life is not over because you didn't buy their, their podcast app. No, but I mean, that's, that's a lot of the complaint about this conversation is like, Oh, poor you. But I mean, my argument is more like, I want the good apps. Like, if we had this sort of ecosystem that could reward someone making something really, really nice, uh, we wouldn't have as much shit. Yeah. I, th- I think That's there, there will still right? always be those gems there because I, I was thinking about this the other day because I think there are a lot of parallels to you know where the music industry is at now in terms of we've sort of been through the really dark times in the music industry and there's still a lot of really great music getting made. And as an indie musician, in a lot of ways, things, you know, suck and your sort of upward um, options are, you know, pretty limited. Um, But people still make music and they still, you know, lose money making their album and lose money touring because they love to do it. And I think that's always going to be the case for people who have ideas on iOS as well. Yes, I think. Um, The thing is... When you're in the band, when you, like, give up and go work as a sandwich artist at Subway, I can just slot in another indie band. I mean, I feel like, one, it might... I mean, I guess, you know, like, a really good app, you want to have a relationship with, right? Like, you want it to be there a year later. You know, that's one of these complaints is that so much of the software on the App Store is, you know, still not even updated for iOS 7. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, I I don't know that a donation model would work within apps or anything, but there are times. One of the good examples is Evernote. Donation model will not work for sure. But, you know, I pay the annual Evernote fee, whatever it is, $50 or something. I don't use any of the Evernote features and they never once said you need to upgrade to premium now, but it, my whole life runs on Evernote. I don't want the service to go away. And so I upgraded recognizing that, you know, it is a critical part of every day of my life. Right. But you also have to realize that this is the tragedy of the commons and no one else is doing that. And eventually they will go out of business. Well, because 
<laughs> they're not funded by subscriptions, are they? Ever know? You mean they're not like profitable based on subscriptions? I mean, it doesn't cover a minority even of their operating costs, does it? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'd be I'd be amazed if it did. I would imagine they're burning VC pretty quickly. I would assume, although you know some of the like photo sharing services and other things we've seen that have um, gone out of business and have released their numbers have you know indicated that their subscription numbers were sort of across the board enough to cover their hardware costs and their you know their actual ongoing fixed costs. Um, so I don't know. I don't think it has to be impossible, but I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, um, I hope you know someone smart at Apple is thinking about this problem as well. I, I at a minimum. So let's solve the problem for them. Well, we're podcasters. <laughs> we we paid our dues. I'm pretty sure the answer is Bitcoin, right? Uh, Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, what's the solution? I mean, there must be one. I think there's well, one as a lot of people have said, there's a lot they can do in just the way the App Store works. Um, they can do a lot to remove noise from the app store and they can do a lot to lessen the effect of sort of you're either in the top 10 or the top 50 or you don't exist. Um, and they can do a lot more. But I haven't heard a good solution for that. What's the solution? Just not have a top 10 or top 50. I think that's a big part of it. Um, but what does that do? You said you don't go, I mean, the reason why they added those, I don't go in there regardless. I mean, I think there's more they could do in terms of, you know, social and other things to mine things that are interesting to you. Um, I don't know. I mean, that, there's a that lot they can do. Like something it. that can be done structurally. That's something that the developer has to get around. I mean, that's marketing again. The, well, yeah, there's a lot they could do to help with marketing, though. Um, I disagree. Because the whole point of marketing is rising above the fray. Like, obviously, there's how there's like a 27 billion apps in the app store now right something like that yeah yeah i think that's the number right and so buck a piece i mean we're probably only going to buy half of them like for each of our phones uh-huh. and so how do you advertise all of them like you can't there's no like there's nothing that apple can do structurally that isn't going to choose just some of the apps to show you like that's the whole oh, i'm not talking about apple marketing your app for you but i'm saying that they can help you learn more about who's buying your apps and understand what's working in terms oh. of your marketing and what's not. Yes, um, that I agree. So that you can actually focus your application. And there's a lot they could do in terms of giving you better opportunities for, you know, getting people, you know, running promotions. And, and I don't know. There's a lot they could do. Yeah. Coupon codes, upgrade pricing. I mean, yeah. I think on the Mac side, upgrade pricing especially, you know, would help make it a sustainable ecosystem. I think they should give a... $500 a month ad buy on iAds to all developers or some sort of like funny money. Yeah. So that you can basically automate, like, so every developer has a budget, maybe just based on sales or no, nah, that would be too yeah, inversely or something. Yeah. Well, then you just only see the shitty apps, which Apple would love to bury. Well, but I think, uh, I think Apple needs to more actively bury those apps as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they should just start banning apps. Yeah. I don't uh, think it needs to be a free and open. I mean, it's not in that there's a review, but there's an awful lot of stuff on the App Store that d- serves no good garbage. for anyone. Yeah. Um, I would. Yeah. So they should prune, prune the garden a lot. Um, 
Yeah, I'd like to see something where they gave everyone some ad money. Yeah. I mean, they have this ad network that's not making them... There's no way it's making Apple any money. Right. Um, and it's not like Apple's hurting for money. Like, in, in exactly. this whole conversation, Apple is the one you shouldn't feel sorry for the most, so... Well, right. It's the same as YouTube. I mean, the middleman still profits. Like, they don't care if everyone's not making enough money to survive. Everyone's making a little bit of money, and Apple gets a little bit of everyone's little bit of money. So, like, the store is still growing. Spending on the store is still growing. The only thing that's changed is that the number of people sharing that money has gone up drastically. Right, exactly. Where there's still only one Apple taking 30% of everybody's money. So they're doing better for it, and they could care less. What's part of the problem is that we're at odds with them as far as... Incentives. Incentives. Yeah. Wow. And that is true with YouTube as well. I mean, yeah, definitely. YouTube wants all the weird content that the world can produce in their free time. They're less concerned with whether or not those people can quit their day jobs. Yeah. Cool. So what do we do? Um, I think we do chatter and then we get back to working on our apps. Uh, okay, fine. Um, We're working on marketing our app right now. Yeah. This is customer outreach. Hi, customers. Um, none of you sent me demo footage yet. I'm very disappointed. Um, my chatter this week is the Nostalgia Machine. What does this do? Uh, the Nostalgia Machine is a thing where you go in and you pick a year and then it shows you music videos for all the songs that were popular that year. <laughs> that is exactly what I was going to guess it was. Yeah. I was going to see MC Hammer. It's really fun. I uh, bet it's fun. It's a good idea. It's, you know. Does it play the whole music video? If it's available on YouTube. I mean, it's just basically pre-mined, uh, you know, or I think it's probably uh, curated catalogs or something, but yeah. Wow. I like this. Yeah. It's, it was fun. I clicked around a little and was like, oh, I remember. And in 1994, Ace of Base had like 16 top videos. It was ridiculous. I believe that. It, you know burned bright but briefly yeah i believe that yeah um i guess they didn't see the sign all that she wants is another baby don't turn around that was a good album man that was yeah see again that was back get the nostalgia machine i'm just gonna Put on your ace of base. Put on some ace of base. All right. Well, before you do that, what was your chatter this week? So I got two this week. Two? Two. I know it's cheating. Um, but only one of them has a link, so <laughs> we'll do that one first. Um, that is, and I, we may have already done this one. That's why I get a second one. Um, SIGGRAPH is coming up soon. And a while ago, they put out their annual clip trailer for technical papers. So this is like anyone who submitted a technical paper that had video content attached to it. Oh, sure. Sort of string them together and the guy talks over them and all the various things. Um, So that is out for 2014. They decided to go a little bit more wild and wacky with their descriptions and stuff, which 
can get a little grating. Um, but yeah, new stuff. Um, nothing really stood out too much for me this year. Um, except there was one thing that where they could do a, um, they could 3d print a piece of, um, clear acrylic or something designed such that the caustics in it would produce a pattern when you shone light through it. Cool. So you get, so like the example they showed was a piece of plastic, the shape of a profile of a head that when you shone light through it, the shadow on the wall would be of the head sort of partial opacity with a super bright brain like lensed into the middle yeah from the caustics it was super neat um so check that stuff out and then the other thing i wanted to just mention was a uh found out through facebook this week that bob robert drew the creator of american cinema verite passed away this week um he did the movies Primary um, and a number of other JFK movies and followed like, he did like three or four movies about the um, the Gandhi dynasty oh, in yeah. India. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's worth looking at his old catalog. Uh, watching his movies in college is what made me decide to not become a director <laughs> and to not do fiction. So... It's like watching primary for the first time is when I decided I wanted to do documentaries and because I wanted to do documentaries that editing would be more fun than directing. Um, and I had the chance to work with him a little bit. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Um, I actually worked on his, I cut his autobiographical film for him. Cool. So check it out. Um, sad to hear that happen. Yeah. But it's where it's a good excuse to go through the back catalog. Sounds good. Well, we'll put a link uh, to some of his stuff in the show notes, and we'll see you all next week. Sounds good. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.